good morning. Would you please join me in opening up our Bibles as we do each week? This time to Galatians chapter 4. It's on page 974 if you're just joining us for the first time and don't have a Bible with you. would invite you to use a blue pew Bible in front of you, and that's where you'll find Galatians 4 on 974. If you have your own Bible, you're on your own finding the page with it. But uh, if you're just joining us for maybe the first time or watching for the first time online, uh, we began preaching through this book of Galatians, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Galatia, ancient Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. And we've been taking it verse by verse, and this morning we'll be picking it up at verse 21 of chapter 4 and taking it to the end of the chapter. And as providence would have it, maybe you know this if you've been following and reading ahead, is that our passage this morning focuses on a story of two mothers and their sons. And so I just want to say up front, this was not planned. So last fall, when I'm sketching out the series of Galatians that was going to start in January with passages and dates, I uh, promise you I did not intentionally make it so that we were here on Mother's Day. Um, So if you were maybe initially impressed or initially bothered that I would take the time to try and pull that off, I I can uh, promise you that this, uh, and just put both those reactions to rest this morning, that this was providence, not planning. And yet, here we are, and so happy Mother's Day. And while it is not a Christian holiday, it is a holiday that Christians should know what to do with, right? And that the idea of honoring mothers fits in with a Christian worldview, um, especially but not limited to the fact that the fifth commandment that Moses gave to the people of God after they were freed from slavery in Egypt was honor your father and mother. And as Rich beautifully led us in prayer this morning, uh, Mother's Day does bring with it an array of emotions in a room this size, that even just the phrase, Happy Mother's Day, brings with it a mixture of joy and celebration and grief and lament and regret. I know, um, just pastoring over the last several years, that there are people who will avoid church on Mother's Day not knowing what would be kind of said that they maybe just can't emotionally handle. And and so it can be a complex day. Um, And as we'll see, this passage about two mothers and their sons is also going to be a little bit complex. And at this point in the letter, Paul is going to give a closing argument to conclude the middle section of Galatians. So if you remember way back when we started Galatians 3, I said 3 and 4 were going to be deeply theological um, and to a point where uh, he's going to kind of get in the weeds in a good way about kind of parsing apart the idea of grace and uh, salvation, and he's going to go back to the Old Testament often. And so this morning is basically the closing argument of that whole section, and that he's going to give a story that addresses this distinction that he's been saying over and over again, this distinction between grace and and law or, or works. And the reason why Paul has been so passionate about this is because the central problem he's hearing in the uh, church in Galatia is how they are confusing that very relationship, the relationship between grace and law. And the consequences he knows are eternally tragic. In that, that relationship of, of grace and law will bring you to the center of understanding the gospel. It will form what you believe about your belief. And just as important, it will form how you live your life. And on the contrary, if we do not grasp this distinction, 
Once again, grace and law, or as Paul will write in the passage, sometimes he'll write promise instead of grace. You will risk believing in something untrue. And when you believe in something that is untrue, belief shapes behavior, and we risk wasting our lives. And I don't say that lightly. And so with all that on the line, that's why Paul is passionate, and that's why he's going to now share a story about these two women and their sons. It's not a made-up story. It's not a once upon a time. It's a story that maybe some in the Galatian church who did not have Jewish background were hearing for the first time. It's a story you this morning might be hearing for the first time. It's a story from the founding of Israel's family. And Abraham and these two women that he had a son with, Sarah and Hagar. And so Paul knows what he's doing when he shares this story. He knows that the false teachers that have been really wreaking havoc in the church of Galatia will be listening and reading in on this too. And so it's like Paul is saying, hey, Judaizers, hey, false teachers, pay attention. You talk a lot about the true sons of Abraham. That's important to you. Okay, now let's talk about the literal sons of Abraham. So that will set us up this morning. Galatians 4, again, I'll pick it up at verse 21, and we'll be taking it to verse 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds with the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Simple stuff this morning. Simple, simple stuff for us. It is not simple, but I do think out of the gate, this will at least help simplify things a little bit. This passage starts with a question, and it ends with an answer. The question, verse 21, tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Paraphrase, you who want to be saved by your works, Do you realize what you're wishing for? And then there's nine verses in the middle, which we will unpack. And then it ends with the answer in verse 31. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Saying we are children of promise, not law. And so the central truth is the same truth he has been saying again and again and again in this letter to this point. 
That true freedom that we all yearn for comes through God's grace, not our works. And knowing the difference makes all the difference. Again, not only in what you believe, but then how you live. And so so here's how we're going to unpack this passage. We're going to see, number one, the story, number two, the meaning, and then number three, the importance. All right, we're going to see what happened, two, what does it mean, and three, why does it matter? Starting with number one, the story. So Paul poses that opening question to those who, quote, desire to be under the law, Again, meaning that those who are relying on their own obedience to some degree, their obedience to God's commands for their salvation. That's what they're relying on, how they live, what they work as the grounds for their salvation. He says those who desire that, that, that say even, you know, yes, faith in Jesus is important, I get that, but in addition to faith, there are certain parts of God's law that we need to be, do in order to be saved, right? Jesus plus, yes, Jesus, but plus these things. And that's what the false teachers have instilled into the church in Galatia. And so Paul asks again, I think this is, not, this is a tone of agony, not a tone of condemnation. He says, do you not realize what that means? But let, let, let me bring you back to the beginning. Let me bring you back to the book of Genesis and, and the beginning of the family that would eventually grow and multiply into the nation of Israel. And he tells the story. Some of you might know this story. But many of you maybe don't or could use a refresher as to why he's bringing that up now. Back in Genesis chapter 12, you don't have to turn there, but God calls this man named Abraham, and he says, Abraham, go from your father's country to the land I will tell you. And in chapter 12, he gives Abraham a promise, and the promise is this, quote, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. It's a big promise for God of the universe to give a sinful man. It's especially big promise for Abraham because the only thing we knew about Abraham up to this point was a one line giving at the end of chapter 11. You remember what that one line was? It says, Abraham was married to a woman named Sarah. Quote, and Sarah was barren. She had no child. So follow this timeline along with me. Genesis 12, he receives this promise. Abraham is 75 years old. Sarah was 65. You fast forward to Genesis 16, it's 10 years later. Abraham, 85 years old now, still no child. So Sarah approaches him and says, Abraham, I still can't bear a child. How are we going to become a great nation if we can't start with one? And Sarah had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. Sarah said, Abraham, you go marry Hagar, and you have a child with her. Abraham foolishly says, okay. And he marries Hagar, and she conceives a child right away. And immediately in Genesis 16, Sarah says to Abraham, how could you? How could you? And so I'm not going to dwell on this, but if Abraham could not see that coming, just like I had just some intuition. He's 85 years old. He's lived a long time. I got some questions for Abraham. 
And Sarah then starts to deal harshly with Hagar, her servant, because she is bitter, she's angry, she feels like Hagar is projecting herself over her. And so Hagar flees. And if you remember the story, she flees to the wilderness, and the Lord intervenes directly to Hagar, comforts Hagar through an angel. And Hagar returns back. And she gives birth to Abraham's son, and they name him Ishmael, when now Abraham is 86. Keep following. Fast forward now. At age 99, Ishmael, his son, is now a teenager. Sarah still has no child. Almost 25 years after the promise. And I realize, especially on a day today, that for some that hits a lot harder and closer to home than others. Desire to grow a family, clinging to the Lord in it, and then year goes by, and another year goes by. And for Sarah, 24 years. And God then reaffirms his promise to Abraham that Sarah will have a son. And we cannot blame her when Sarah overhears this conversation and she starts to laugh in disbelief. You know, the kind of laugh that's like, that's crazy. Not the laugh I'm excited, the laugh of no way. And then the following year, Abraham, at the ripe age of 100, Sarah, age 90, she conceived and gives birth to a son, and they name him Isaac, which means the one who laughs. The last part of the story is Genesis 21. Isaac is now three, Keep tracking, Abraham, 103. His first son, Ishmael, is either 16 or 17 years old. And something happens where Ishmael, the text says, Ishmael, Ishmael mocked Isaac. And the interpretation is actually a little bit tricky. There are some commentators who think that the word conveys not just that he was mocking Isaac, but that he was mocking him in the act of harming him. A three-year-old. But either way, Ishmael is mocking Isaac, and Sarah sees this, And Sarah demands that Abraham send Hagar and Ishmael away. And then the Lord comes to Abraham and says, listen to Sarah. And in tears, he does so. And the family splits. Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. He stays with Sarah and Isaac. That's the story that Abraham brings now to the forefront of the Galatian church. That's what happened. So now, what does it mean? What does he mean? Leads to number two, the meaning. It's just interesting for us in terms of timing of the timeline here. Um, Paul and the Galatians were as far removed from Abraham and Sarah than we are now from Paul. 2,000 years. Paul and the Galatian church came 2,000 years after Abraham. We now, in redemptive history, are 2,000 years now removed from Paul. And Paul, in in his contemporary setting, takes this story inspired by God from 2,000 years prior and applies it to their present moment. Verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. For those of you who are right now racking your brain, trying to remember back to middle school English class, and you're like, allegory, allegory, allegory. What is it? Like, I got you, okay? An allegory is a story that has both a literal meaning and a symbolic meaning. And Paul is affirming the historical, literal meaning within the story of Hagar 
and Sarah. He, he, he's not taking anything away from that, of God, how God used that, of these two women and their two sons. And Isaac was the one who was born through promise, born, uh, born through the family line of Abraham that would go forward, that would lead to uh, another generation and, and another generation and another generation. It would grow and it spread. It would eventually lead to the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. The ethnic group through whom Paul was born through, the ethnic group through whom the Savior would be born. So Paul affirms that. That was not a fiction. It's not once upon a time. That happened. But now he says there's also a symbolic meaning we should take note of in that story that Paul draws out for the church. And he says it really gives you the meaning of grace and law. Or the work of the Spirit versus the work of the flesh. Or the promise versus works. All these different kind of terms flowing from grace and law. He says these two sons represent the two ways people seek to become spiritual children of God. There's two ways that those try to put themselves in right standing before the God of the universe. Verse 23, but the son of the slave, which is Ishmael, was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman, who was Isaac, was born through promise. So again, Paul's closing argument, he wants clarity here, we want clarity here. What does that mean? It means the birth of Ishmael was not God's intention or plan. Was he sovereign over it? Absolutely. But was that his desire for Abraham? No. God promised Abraham that he would bear a son through his wife, Sarah. So Ishmael represented both Abraham and Sarah trying to bring about the fulfillment of a promise in their own strength, in their own flesh. Again, after 10 years of the original promise, they got nervous. We can resonate with that. How will this great promise in my life be fulfilled when I can't even see the next step? How will we become a great nation when we don't have a child, Abraham? We're getting older. The chances are getting dimmer. We need to ensure this happens. And so Abraham, go have a child with Hagar. Ishmael was born according to the flesh. Contrast that with the birth of Isaac, which was according to God's plan, the fulfillment of God's promises. It was a miracle birth, a birth that was all God's doing. He initiated, he fulfilled, he supplied all that was needed for this birth and the fulfillment of this promise. And so you put that all together, Paul says, so it is, so it is excuse me, with our spiritual rebirth. So it is with you, Galatian church. So it is with the children of God. Those who rely on the works of the flesh, those who rely on their own obedience, their own wisdom, their own dedication, their own ability to bring about salvation and right standing before God, they are slaves to sin. They will never understand they will never receive the gift of salvation. They are darkened. Their eyes are closed and blinded. And that was never God's plan for you to figure out your salvation in your own strength. It was never God's plan. And so that's why he says to the church, is this what you want? Especially, church, this is what you want to return to? 
You want to be sons of Hagar and, and rely on your own works and your own abilities for salvation. This is Paul saying, be careful what you wish for. A man or woman cannot earn their salvation any more than a mosquito can go today and fly into the Niagara Falls and live. And this is the reoccurring theme throughout Galatians. Paul is saying that there's two kinds of people in the world. There are children of slavery who try to earn salvation in their own works. And there are children of promise who receive the gift of salvation of grace. And those who were in God's family... The true sons of Abraham, the true children of Abraham, are the children of promise. It comes not through works, but by faith. It comes not through the law, but by grace. And as we've already seen and really unpacked earlier in this series, we're not saying the law is bad. God gave the law, right? Like The, the, the law was not like God being like, oh, that wasn't great, let's try plan B. That the law always had a purpose, and its purpose was never to save. In fact, the law was meant to, in part, point to our need for salvation. Remember the MRI machine illustration. An MRI machine is never meant to heal you. It's meant to expose what is wrong with you. That's what the law is in the Bible. It is meant to be a mirror to expose what is wrong. It was never meant to save. It was meant to point to another miracle birth that would be coming. Another baby that would be born according to the promise. And his name is Jesus. That's the story. That's the meaning. And now we finish with number three, the importance. Why does this matter for us? What difference does it make? I hope many of you can already see and affirm what difference it would make. But let me just, again, seeking clarity here. Paul's closing argument. Let's close it with him. Three reasons why this is important for us, why it was important for the Galatian church and for us. Number one, Christ is our freedom. Christ is our freedom. Paul gave this story, again, as a closing statement with a singular aim. Verse 31, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. True, eternal freedom is not found in the grounds of our works. It is found in the works of another, and his name is Jesus. Christ is our freedom. And so let me kind of put this practically in a way that maybe you can relate to. Um, if, if you are a professing Christian today, and you were asked maybe by your son or daughter, maybe you were asked by your friend or a coworker or a neighbor, um, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Simple question. What I think Paul is saying is that any answer that begins with I starts at the wrong end of things. I got baptized. I went through confirmation. I go to church. I serve at church. I'm a good person. I love others, especially the least of these. I know my Bible. I had Christian parents. All those things are good things. But if we start with that, we start at the wrong end. Because the false teachers in Galatia, do you know what they were saying? I've been circumcised. I observe the traditional calendar days and years. I am a true ethnic descendant of Abraham. Paul says if your answer starts with I, you could be relying on the law. 
that deep down you're relying on you. And if that is what you want, be careful what you wish for. Because do you know that if you want to be justified by the law, you have to be perfect. That God then demands the whole law. Rather, God's plan from the beginning was never for you to do it on your own. For God supplies what God demands. And so the answer, hey, why are you a Christian? If you're a professing Christian, I think the, uh, it's not about being right or wrong, but the, the answer starts with him. God loved me. God revealed himself to me. The Father sent his Son to die for me. Christ was perfect. He fulfilled the whole law. Christ lived the life I couldn't live. Christ died the death I deserved. The Spirit awakened my heart to his grace. The Spirit regenerated my soul, gave me a new heart by faith. When we gather here each week, we gather not to worship how well we're doing we gather to worship him. We're not here to pat ourselves on the back. I, I, and, and think about how hopefully in small ways this gets communicated to us each and every week. Think about the songs we sing the whole morning, but especially after the sermon. The songs in response to the sermon. Do you know what a lot of those songs are? In Christ alone. Christ, our hope in life and death. Christ is enough. In a few moments, we will sing he will hold me fast. He, him. It starts with him, the triune God. This is true freedom. The third verse in the old hymn, Rock of Ages, says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Christ is our freedom. Is he your freedom? Do you know he can be? When I ask these questions, I hope you don't hear me saying, shame on you, but rather, grace on you. Grace for you. Why does it matter? Because Christ is our freedom. Number two, second reason why this matters is that holiness is our pursuit. Christ is our freedom, number one. And now number two, holiness is our pursuit. Hang with me here. If the biggest mistake we can make is to think that we are saved by our works, the second biggest mistake is to think that because we're saved by grace, that works don't matter at all. That's not true. Again, hang with me. We pursue holiness. We pursue good works because we have been born of the Spirit by grace. Therefore, because God has done a work in us by his spirit, we now are empowered and enabled to put to death the enslavement of the flesh that still remains. And he's kind of navigating that tightrope in Galatians, but I think it's most clearly seen in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, um, it'll be on the screen. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. See the clarity? This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then the very next verse, verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Those of you who've been around church a while, this is a very familiar passage. It gets referenced a lot and for good reason. 
because it helps us to avoid the two vital mistakes that I just mentioned. That on the one hand, we are not saved by good works. It is a gift of God. But we are saved for good works. And we pursue holiness individually. We pursue holiness as a church. And we do so with confidence and with freedom. If you were here at the end of last week, remember in Galatians 4.19, Paul's primary hope for you is that over time, Christ will be formed in you. That as you grow up in your spiritual life, you will look more like Jesus in the way you think, in the way you speak, in the way you act. That is Christ being formed in you. And so what does that look like? What does it look like to pursue holiness? It means putting to death the flesh. It means putting to death the desire to always center ourselves and rather to live by the Spirit which seeks to center Christ. That's why Paul quotes Genesis 21, which I referred to earlier in verse 30. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. He's applying this to the modern-day church, that the flesh and the spirit cannot coexist. You cannot feed both. If you feed one, you're going to dim the other. They cannot coexist. And so here's the perspective shift for the church today. Here's the perspective shift for the person who says, Christ is my freedom, is that I pursue holiness not because I have to, but I get to. I get to. We are free to enjoy him. We are free to love him, free to pursue him, free to glorify him in all you do. You are free to put to death that which is still sinful within you. You don't have to, you get to. And we know this intuitively. When you truly love someone in this world, like you have a fierce love for them, you are free to enjoy them, to lavish upon them, to honor them, to show them your love. And if you really love someone, you're not waking up in the morning going, I got to do something for them. You get to. And as we love him, it flows over to a love for others. When you pursue Christ, there is a collateral benefit to those in your life. So those of you who are mothers, can I remind you today that the best way you can love and raise the children in your care is by letting them know you love God more than anything, including them. Otherwise, you're going to crush them with the expectations you put on them, and they'll feel that. The best way you can raise the children in your care is to let them know you love God more than them. And when you pursue Christ and love him more than anything, your children will benefit. Uh, for, for all of us, if you're at work or in your vocation, whether that's home or in the workplace, when you pursue Christ and you love him more than your job, your coworkers and your clients will benefit. Students, when you pursue Christ and you love him more than your friends and more than your sport and more than your studies, your friends and your benefit and your studies and, and your teammates will, will benefit. When this happens, when we rightly order the loves in our life, those around us get caught in the crossfire of God's glory. And they're blessed because of it, even if they don't realize it. A pursuit of holiness leads to human flourishing. And on the flip side, and what we see sometimes in our own hearts, but certainly the headlines of the news every day, is that a pursuit of self-glorification leads to human suffering. Holiness leads to flourishing. 
Self-glorification leads to suffering. On the individual level, on the systemic level, on the global level. You will only love your neighbor as yourself if you love God most of all and pursue him as such. That's number two. And then third and final, why does this matter? Number three, heaven is our home. In verses 25, Paul equates Hagar with the earthly city of Jerusalem at the time, which symbolizes slavery, symbolizes self-works. But then in verse 26, he equates Sarah with the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is above and is free. It symbolizes freedom. And then in verse 27, you'll see he gives a direct quote about a barren woman. And you might think when you were hearing this that he's quoting about Sarah, who was barren. But that's not a quote from Genesis. That's a quote from Isaiah 54 about the nation of Israel that was in exile. And he's exhorting them, connecting the church in exile, the barren, uh, I mean, sorry, the barren people of God who were sent into exile with the barren woman in Genesis 12, and, and exhorts the church as a result of it saying, rejoice even when you're in exile. Rejoice even when you're barren. For freedom is at hand. And God will be faithful to his promises. And he connects those dots all across scripture to affirm what we sang this morning, that in Christ he is the yes and amen to every promise. And he reminds Galatia, he reminds us, Grace Church, that because we are free, we don't live for earthly pleasure. We don't need to find our ultimate fulfillment here. We are not enslaved to the earthly city because it ain't it for us. Instead, we're living for a heavenly home. And when we live as children of the promise of the Father who is preparing a place for us in a heavenly home, it changes everything about the way we live here. In blessing and in suffering, in prosperity and in persecution, in much and in little, we are children of promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how you use story and the power of story to bring about truth. We thank you that Paul chose, inspired by your spirit, to share this story at this point in his letter. And we pray, Lord, that this story would do for us what it did for the church in Galatia, to remind us who we are, to remind us whose we are, to keep us from pursuing our own foundational grounds of salvation in our own works, Lord, but rather to look to you. He, him, he will hold me fast, Lord. Now as we rise to sing that, Lord, I pray that it would flow out from our souls and impact not just what we sing and say, but how we live when we walk out these doors. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand as we respond in song?